0: You know, I don't want to be a Christmas Scrooge, brother.
1: Too late. No, I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> I don't want to be a Christmas Scrooge and pour uh, you know, water on, uh, but but uh, hey, You realize hey, that
1: everyone's going to be watching the nativity plays and somebody has to play the innkeeper in, these, in these dramas.
0: The poor kid that plays the innkeeper.
1: This is The Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome! Thanks for joining. Welcome back to another episode of The Bible Sojourner. Today we have the immense, and I mean this, the immense privilege of welcoming Dr. Will Varner back on. Dr. Varner is Professor of Biblical Languages and Biblical Exposition at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. Dr. Varner, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for the uh, opportunity to come back. You know, you had me a couple of years ago, so I must not have did too bad for you to invite me back. So thank you.
1: (laughs) No, we are happy to invite you back. In fact, (laughs) you've had a few busy years in between here since we last had you on. Uh, You just recently published a book on the Apostolic Fathers with TNT Clark. Yeah, your you
0: you mentioned that, so I'll just hold it up. Oh, Uh,
1: yeah. There it is.
0: Apostolic Fathers, I... You know, uh, yeah, uh, it it, uh, probably is—I'm not not as well-known, I guess, uh, for writing on the Fathers, but they're important. They're not inspired, but they're inspiring. And uh, so I was honored that a major academic publisher like TNT Clark would do that, and I hope it makes a contribution.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to look at that. And I also have here in my hand the Handbook for Praying Scripture— that you just recently compiled and came out with. Now, I have to ask you, it seems to me everybody I've talked to loves this. What kind of reception have you gotten for this book?
0: It's been overwhelmingly gratifying. Uh, My dear wife, maybe your wife says something like this uh, every now and then. She says, honey, every now and then, would you write a book for the rest of us? (laughs) And this is a book for the rest of us. Now, that does not mean it's not for academics because laymen pray, and academics pray. So it it's a book for all of us. And uh, it, it grew out of my personal prayer life. I mentioned in the introduction that following the death of my precious daughter in 2005, uh, what kept me anchored was learning to pray scripture. Hmm. And uh, I've been praying scripture ever since. Uh, and uh, so I said, uh, when the uh, Legacy Standard Bible came out, I said, maybe I could come up with a prayer book uh, uh, using the legacy standard Bible prayers, uh, excuse me, scriptures. Uh, and um, so that that's it. So it's a book for all of us, <laughs> whereas the Apostolic Fathers might be for the more academic among us. And the Lord has blessed. The response has been overwhelming and uh, people are ordering it in bulk, you know, for gifts. And I'm gratified for that. And I think at, at my age, brother, it's a good one to go out on. <laughs> that uh, I'll minister not just to the heads of academics, but to the hearts and minds of all of us. Hopefully.
1: Oh, Amen. Yeah, and I would just second that. I think even, even academics, as you say, I would say probably even especially academics just need to be reminded of the basics. You I said find it. myself thinking that. You said uh, quite often. Well, you know, Doctor Varner, you you've written on the Apostolic Fathers. You had your hand in uh, the Legacy Standard Bible translation. You've written uh, or compiled this this book on prayers. But looking back on your your career of teaching, you've taught a lot of classes. You've mm-hmm. taught Old Testament surveys. In fact, I think you just mentioned you taught that today. You yeah. you have you've taught New Testament Life of Christ Greek classes. You. You definitely are a a man of many skills and talents, and I thought it would be a great uh, opportunity to have you on the podcast and talk about Christmas. It's Christmas season, and I even wore my red today uh, in right. honor of, of Christmas. So uh, it's Christmas. A lot of people are are starting to you know read through the gospel narratives with Matthew and Mark, and so I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this when think so. we're think when we're thinking about the gospel narratives and how they talk about the Christmas season. Um, why why don't the gospels talk about the Christmas story the same way? Why are there
0: differences? Yes, uh, good question. Of course, it's Matthew and Luke that uh, talk about what we call the Christmas story nativity, but even they uh, approach it a little bit differently. Uh, and I think it's because uh, each gospel writer had a different audience and a different purpose, now their overall purpose, of course, is to present Jesus, but to for Matthew to present him as king, uh, uh, probably an initial heavy Jewish readership, whereas Luke presenting uh, emphasizing more the humanity of our Lord with probably a uh, a wider, more Gentile uh, audience. So with different purposes and maybe slightly different audiences, I think that points out why they are different. Different, but we as evangelicals with a high view of scripture will also say they're the same. (laughs) You can be different uh, uh, without being contradictory. And I think those who don't accept the inspiration of the scriptures will be the first ones to say, Matthew contradicts Luke, Luke contradicts Matthew. And we know that that's not true. Uh, They come at it from a little bit different angle, with maybe a little bit different initial audience, but all with the point of presenting Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, I I think, uh, uh, pardon my French, viva la difference. (laughs) What if we had four Gospels telling the exact same thing, (laughs) saying it the exact same way? No, we don't. We have a different angle and I think that's great uh, that that we should accentuate the distinctiveness of each gospel without sacrificing their, uh, their agreement, yes.
1: No, that's that's really insightful. I, I like one of our uh, mutual friends, Doug Bookman, uh, often talks about in his Life of Christ class that you can you know harmonize the Gospels and get a full orbed picture. But I think like what you're saying too, and Bookman would agree that you know looking looking pulling the curtain back as it were and looking individually at what each author is doing mm-hmm. is is really helpful. And I I appreciate how you pointed out that although some scholars might be quick to say there's contradictions here, I think that we do have a predisposition to looking Mm -hmm. at the scriptures saying, you know what, I think these can harmonize. And with with that in mind, uh, I think maybe this is, at least in my mind, one of the biggest differences between—obviously there's some different details that we might talk about in just a little bit—but one of the biggest differences between Matthew and Luke are the genealogies. Mm -hmm. And so can you explain the significance of these differences and how scholars have kind of tried to talk about why there are differences? Yeah. uh,
0: Well, let me sum it up, and then I'll allow you to ask uh, more specific questions. Uh, uh, Matthew uh, uh, begins with Abraham. And of course, ends with Jesus. Whereas Luke's begins with well, actually, he doesn't begin uh, because in Matthew they go from Abraham down to Jesus, but in Luke he goes from Jesus backwards. Okay, uh, but in going backwards, he does not go back just to Abraham; he goes back to Adam. So straightening them all out, uh, you know, Matthew comes from Abraham down to Jesus. Luke comes from Adam down to Jesus. And I think that in itself is uh, pointing out something. Uh, uh, For the Jewish people, the history begins with Abraham, okay, you know, and and of course he mentions Abraham to David and David to the exile and the exile down to uh, Jesus. Whereas in Luke, it's starting with Adam and, and it shows that Jesus goes all the way back before Abraham because Jesus is for all people. Now, Matthew wouldn't disagree with that, of course, nor would Luke disagree with the fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But with probably the initial readership being Jewish, uh, in Matthew and predominantly Gentile with Luke you can see how Matthew would be more interested in anchoring Jesus in a Jewish context whereas Luke would be more anxious to anchor him you know he's not just for the Jews he's for everybody all the descendants of Adam
1: that that's very helpful uh as as kind of a tag on that. I guess there's a lot of questions about the genealogies. Uh, one would be, when you're tracing these genealogies, uh, is, it, is it exhaustive? I, is every name listed here? Or should we expect that these are representative generational genealogies? How, how, do we, how are we to understand
0: that? Are there gaps
1: in, in the genealogies?
0: Yes, there are distinct gaps by design. N- not that that's a contradiction, When you say that Abraham is the uh, father of Isaac, uh, he's also the father of David. He's also the father of Jesus because he's their ancestor. And so when we read that beget, beget, uh, uh, Abraham beget, it means Abraham became the ancestor of the next person. And so then you see that some of the kings uh, uh, are left out. That's not a contradiction. It's that, uh, you know, Hezekiah was the ancestor of the next person, and, but the next person may not be chronologically right after them. So it's not a matter of a contradiction. And when you see that a, a, a Matthew's genealogy, he, and he tells us this, 14 generations. Uh, uh, from Abraham to David, then he uh, repeats David again, 14 generations from David to the captivity, then 14 generations from the captivity to the Messiah. You say, why is he structuring it that way? Well, to get that 14, yes, there are a few that need to be left out. Now, brother, believe me, and you know me, I'm not a numerologist. I'm not one who goes crazy with, with numbers and their symbolic uh, value. But in Matthew 1, I think maybe we do have something. Why that 14, 14, 14? And why does he emphasize it? Well, uh, if you look at the three letters of David's name, uh, uh, Dalit, Vav, Dalet, uh, and you see the numerical value of them, guess what? <laughs> it's 14. Again, I'm almost careful to to say that because I don't want people think that I'm going crazy on numerology, I don't. But Matthew says it and you just gotta wonder because David is so central in that genealogy that perhaps it's artificially, not wrongly, but artificially constructed 14, 14, 14 because David is right there in in the center. He's a descendant of Abraham and he's the ancestor of Jesus. And that is why Jesus is called so much in the Gospel of Matthew, son of David. So uh whereas Luke, oh, well, he just goes all the way back. Could there still be some generations skipped in Luke's generation? Yeah, there could be, uh, because some of the people we don't recognize in Luke's genealogy. So uh so some can be skipped. For example, there's this, uh, this situation of Rahab and Boaz. Uh, uh, is, is Rahab that close to Boaz uh, uh, When uh, when in the historical books they look like a good distance apart? Well, that could be some missing generations. Not missing in the sense of an error, the line of the descent is the same thing, but intentionally omitted in the chronology. So, uh, uh, no, there's no contradictions there, and I'm sure you're happy to hear me say that.
1: Yeah, uh, woo, you passed the test. <laughs> you know, yeah. and just to, just to piggyback off what you said, too, just because I know some, some listeners are, you know, fresh off the boat. They're, you know, new believers thinking through yes. this. And one of the things that you kind of flew by, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, when you're talking about 14 being the number for David, uh, and I, I think a lot of people know this, but for those who don't, The numerology teaching, uh, Gematria and other uh, names of it, is you're basically assigning the number to the letter in the alphabet. So in English, we would do something like A is one, B is two. And so if you do A, B, C, you would add one, two, three. And so you'd essentially have six. And so a Hebrew does the same thing and that's what you're explaining is that Absolutely. when you add the dalet vav dalet together you get 14 and mm-hmm. so that's why a lot of people have looked at that and say you know this seems pretty conspicuous and I agree with you I'm not a big I'm not a big numbers guy with uh, these special codes but at the same yeah. time you look at that it's it's pretty intentional it seems
0: Be- because Matthew himself mentions the uh, the number 14 yeah Exactly <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, no, that's that's super helpful, and I appreciate you bringing up uh, the the connection between Rahab and Boaz and the the skipping of generations, not to try to trick us, but just to you know right. be concise to to paint a theological picture.
0: Line of descent, not one, two, three, four, uh, successive generations. It's the lines of descent that are there.
1: Exactly, and on that note, this is kind of I guess it just jumped in my mind here, but. With regard to comparing Matthew and Luke again, uh, are they are they tracing the exact same genealogy? I know I've read some scholars saying, well, one is the mother, one is the father. Uh, you know, is that reasonable, or is are they t- tracing the same genealogy?
0: You know, brother, this is a tough question. Yeah, and it's a question where good evangelical scholars who are committed to inerrancy may not agree. I personally think that uh, uh Matthew's genealogy is clearly a legal genealogy of uh Jesus back through his legal father Joseph back to David through Solomon uh, but but if we believe in the virgin birth and Matthew does too he's not the physical son of of Joseph but he's the legal son and I suggest And there are good people that disagree here, that Luke's genealogy is actually through his mother. So it's his actual physical genealogy is in Luke. Uh, Matthew goes back to David, but he goes back to David through Solomon. Okay, and uh, uh, Luke goes back uh, to David through his uh, his other uh son nathan so uh so uh they're both back to david but physically it goes back to david in luke's uh genealogy
1: so disagree with uh, dr varner at your own peril that's that's <laughs> what you're saying no I'm just kidding
0: <laughs> well we can discuss it <laughs> we can certainly discuss it it's not a matter of of uh, of uh, one's liberal and one's conservative. Uh, well, you're
1: right. It is. I mean, we're not told explicitly it is difficult, but I think it's it's helpful to think about for sure. Yes.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: maybe, maybe one more question on the genealogies. Uh, obviously, you know, Matthew just jumps right out of the gate with a genealogy, and there seems to be an expectation that we're supposed to connect it to something. Mm-hmm. And talking about what has come in the Old Testament prior— yeah what what role did the old testament play with the expectation of prophecy and how do the genealogies kind of connect to that
0: yeah yeah because it's translated from the greek uh you know we may not catch the similarity uh with uh the old testament but uh those are the uh uh, uh, the generations this is the generations of adam this is the generations of noah this is the generations of abraham uh, the book of Genesis is, is organized uh, that way. And it's like Matthew is starting off like the new Genesis, <laughs> the new Genesis. These are the generations of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So uh, it, it's like what was the old generations and those tables, now we're picking it up in Matthew chapter 1, it's like the new Genesis, you might put it that way, Mm. uh, because of that uh, similarity of structure. Uh, You know, uh, genealogies are not the most exciting, interesting thing to many laymen. And some will say, all right, Matthew one one, let me skip down to verse 18, where it gets going. Oh, please don't do that. (laughs) Please don't do that, because if it's inspired too. And it's not just a list of names, like those four gals that are mentioned in the, uh, in the Matthaean genealogy. Uh, You know, even in the Old Testament, the genealogies are primarily men. Uh, And here's Matthew running in these ladies. And not only are they ladies, at least three of them were Gentiles. And every one of these gals has some sort of moral question mark over either their behavior or their background Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth now they were all immoral three of them were but but they all had some sort of shady background even Ruth was not Jewish so so uh, Matthew without any apology says I'm including these gals not only their women they're sinners, <laughs> you know, what? Uh, because uh, Jesus is uh, for women and not just for men. He's for sinners and not just for righteous people. Uh, so uh, so uh, uh, Matthew runs things in there that if you just skip over to the good part, starting in 118, you'll miss some of the very important things he wants you to see as the ancestors of our Lord.
1: Hmm. that's that's insightful I, I appreciate you sharing that well there's a lot more we could talk about with genealogies but there's more to the christmas story too uh so i, I have yeah. a couple questions uh, on follow-up for some of these christmas details so matthew talks about the magi and yes. uniquely mm-hmm. talks about them uh why why does he talk about it and how does this impact how matthew's telling us about the christmas story
0: yeah, brother, you know, oftentimes I say Matthew is for the Jews. Matthew is for the Jews. Matthew is for the Jews, and I need to qualify that, because in Matthew's account, he doesn't leave out the Gentiles. Yes, he 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 grounds everything in Old Testament prophecy and the Jewish scriptures. Absolutely, Isaiah seven fourteen, Micah five two, but the Gentiles have a role in Matthew's gospel. I've already mentioned the the uh, three or four Gentiles in the uh, uh, in the genealogy of our Lord. Uh, but but also there are other Gentiles that pop up and we see that this Jewish scripture is including the Gentiles in the promise. And I think that's why Matthew is careful to include these non-Jewish Magi. They were Gentiles. They did not have Matthew through Malachi, excuse me, Genesis through Malachi. But what they did have was, and this might be a surprise to some of our listeners, there was a guy named Balaam. There was a guy named Balaam that's recorded in the Jewish scriptures of Numbers, and he was not Jewish, but this Gentile. And he's actually could be called a Magi, one of the Magi, one of these ancient seers from uh, the the uh, real Middle East, not the Near East, but the Middle East. And he came from there. Uh, uh, Balaam, uh, remember uh, that they had to send for him and he had to come. Uh, and, and he's a Gentile, uh, uh, but he gives an amazing prophecy in Numbers 24 about a star. And a scepter, uh, you know, a star shall come and, and he's a scepter. Uh, and I really believe that those magi in Matthew 2 could have been familiar, if not of the all of the old testament, to their ancestor Magi, this wise man who spoke about a star and a scepter. Now, with a star, you've got that, and a scepter, that's a king. And so, what do they say when they come? We have seen his star in the east. Where is he that is born, King of the Jews, scepter? So uh, I really think that while Matthew does have a heavy Jewish emphasis, he doesn't leave out the Gentiles. And so, not only are those quote Jewish shepherds coming uh, to see him, but Matthew says these Gentile men come. And, uh, uh, and another, just a suggestion, uh, uh, that um, maybe they knew of Daniel's prophecy as well. Now, why would they know of Daniel's prophecy? Remember, Daniel was in their area. He was in Babylon, where the Magi were. As a matter of fact, in the Greek Septuagint, it actually says uh, that Daniel was over the Magoi. He was over the Magi. So uh, we do know that Daniel, and we don't have time to go into it, of course, gives this amazing 70-week prophecy that really dates the coming of our Messiah there in the first century A.D., uh, or at least uh, about the first century A.D. So I think maybe, maybe, uh, that these Magi treasured Balaam's prophecy, and they had Daniel, because Daniel was one of their boys, And they're looking at this Daniel 49, 69 weeks. You know, it's about uh, time. So they come and they say, we have seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. We Gentiles want to worship this Jewish king.
1: Wow. Yeah, it it always kind of boggles my mind, the things that we don't know. I mean, we, we see the details in scripture, but then just seeing, I mean, were these people God fearers their whole lives and then they were studying the scriptures that they had? Obviously they mm-hmm. they, you know, ha- had limited access, but what they did have to were they faithful. It's just so interesting to think about those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. And I Maybe appreciate they you.
0: knew more than we thought that they knew. Uh we've seen his star in the east. Why would they be looking for a star? Because Balaam said something about a, a star and a scepter.
1: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Oh, that's that's good. So now you mentioned this. Uh, so I, I and I know having sat under you in a variety of capacities, what you think about this, and I think the listeners would be, you know, very interested in this. So I, I'm going to ask it here. Uh, so the star you mentioned the star and. I know you have this view of what the star is. Do you want to kind of walk us through that and share your perspective of what exactly the star was in
0: Matthew? Thank you for asking, because this is a little bit different than uh, the way you've heard the story. Take it for what it's worth. See if I can convince you. (laughs) Yes, it was a star. But oftentimes in the Old Testament, stars are symbolic of angels. Isaiah does this. Many uh, other writers uh, will uh, will speak about stars as, uh, uh, angelic beings as stars. So uh, that's the one thing to begin with. Here's my concern, brother. the star that they saw, if it was a a physical thing that we call a star or maybe a comet, or what what we call a star, it behaved very strangely uh, in Matthew 2. It would appear and disappear. It would move, uh, it, it and it moved from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Then it took a 90-degree south, angle south to Bethlehem, and then this star was over the place where Jesus was. Well, stars or comets or meteors don't behave like that. Uh, they they just don't behave like that. And if a star or a meteor or a comet was over a house in Bethlehem, it would have destroyed the the house. If you know what I'm saying. So perhaps the behavior of this quote star is 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 telling us that maybe it's not what we think of as a physical star but as is oftentimes the appearance in the Old Testament, a star is an angel. And if it is an angel, you can see why the angel would lead them. Maybe it's an angel in his brightness, you know, so he would still be bright like a a star, but the angel was uh, leading them. And if the star was an angel, it parallels then with Luke 2, because in Luke, Two, we've got angels all over the place. (laughs) We've got angels in the sky, the host of the uh, angels saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of goodwill, or men of uh, God's choice. So so you've got angels appearing as angels to Jewish shepherds, but an angel appearing as a star to a non-Jewish people, uh, the uh, Magi take it for what it's worth. We still agree that he was born in Bethlehem <laughs> and whether they were led by a physical star or a symbolic star and angel, we agree uh, that both Jews and Gentiles, Jewish shepherds, Gentile Magi came to worship this Jewish King.
1: Now, if somebody's, cause I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of people that are like, I have never heard that before. And, <laughs> Uh, you wrote a journal article on this at some point, didn't now, you? I
0: not only wrote a journal article on it in a journal that maybe a lot of our our visitors, uh, our our viewers may not be able to get uh, get a hold of. It's a it's a British publication, but in my book, anticipating the advent. I go over this as well as some of the other questions that you're asking, and uh, yeah, I ask, "What was the star of Bethlehem?" So you can look it up and uh, and uh, see. in anticipating the advent, here I am advertising my books. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That's uh, I was going to link to them uh, in the in the little description for the episode. So I'm glad that you Good. mentioned that. This th- that'll be helpful for people who want to follow up on that. Good. Well, now let's let's pick up the story again. So you know the story typically goes that they're following this this massive asteroid through the sky. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so they're following an angel, perhaps you know. And as they're as they're following this, uh, prior to that, when Mary and Joseph are are approaching Bethlehem, we all know the story. You know, yeah. they get there and that nasty mean innkeeper <sighs> says, "Hey, no room." no no room for you is that what happened what happened
0: uh yes yes uh you know i don't want to be a christmas scrooge brother
1: too late no i'm just kidding
0: <laughs> i don't want to be a christmas scrooge and pour uh you know water on uh but but uh, hey, you
1: realize hey, hey, that everyone's going to be watching the nativity plays and somebody has to play the innkeeper in these in these dramas
0: the poor kid that plays the innkeeper. Uh, but uh, just a little bit about that. Uh, uh, and we did follow this in the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, and we're not by ourselves. The word in I-N-N, that's celebrated in the King James Version and some other translations, there was no room in the inn. It is a word that is used elsewhere, not in other Gospels, but in the Gospel of Luke, for a room in a house, in a house. Uh, it's Cataluma, and uh, they prepared a room, a Cataluma, for Jesus later to celebrate the Passover. Not only that, is that same word a room and not a hotel or a motel. There is a reference to a legitimate inn, I-N-N a motel, hotel, uh, whatever you want to call it, in the Gospel of Luke. And it's in the parable of the Great, uh, of the Good Samaritan. Remember, after the man is beat up, the Good Samaritan takes him to an inn, uh, and it is pandakeon. It is a different Greek word than the word that is used in Luke 2 and uh, also for the Lord's Supper. So what I think is going on there, Cataluma means a guest room. Uh, and so by the time that Mary and Joseph get there, probably in a relative's home, because uh, remember it was, he was of the house and lineage of David. It was sort of like his ancestral home. There was no room in the guest room. Uh, so uh, sorry, they had to stay downstairs. Now, I, and I'm not even sure it's a separate stable because downstairs in ancient times oftentimes was the place where the animals were and well, uh, uh, people were on the second floor. So maybe it was simply on the first floor where the animals were and there was that uh, manger. Uh, the manger was probably not made out of wood, uh, those flimsy little mangers that we have in... Our nativity scenes would have been knocked over by any sheep. Uh, So uh, we found some stone majors and brother, you've been there. Uh, You've seen these at Megiddo. These stone majors were probably what Jesus was placed in. They're hefty. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. At Megiddo, you see them. Uh, So, so again, I'm not trying to shatter uh, 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 images, uh, you know, uh, it it it's still a wonderful account of the birth of the savior, uh but uh not so much with a mean innkeeper as just the fact that everybody's crowding into Bethlehem and they got there late and there's no room upstairs, so you gotta stay downstairs. So I think that's uh that's what Luke is saying.
1: No, I appreciate the clarification on that. And I think, you know, we you know if our if our kids Christmas plays are, you know, slightly inaccurate. I think we could have a little bit of grace and patience with Absolutely. the uh, productions. <laughs> you know, that's that's okay. But we also want to do the best we can to understand what's going on. And so Absolutely. I think that's uh that's uh really well explained on your part. Now, bouncing back to to this idea of the Magi versus the shepherds, mm-hmm. maybe we could conclude with with this kind of sure. question. So so Luke makes a big point of the shepherds being there. Mm-hmm. And you've talked a little bit about this, but do you want to just walk us through why why he does that and why that's a big part of the narrative for Luke, why the shepherds
0: yeah. find yeah. a spot there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. In Micah 4 and 5, the prophecy that we're most familiar with is Micah 5 two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of he It'll come one who is to be a ruler. But if we back up into chapter 4 of Micah 4, we see another place addressed. And just as later in Micah 5, 2, it says, and you, Bethlehem, it says, and you, O tower of the flock, uh, in Micah 4. So uh, two places are being addressed. I think they're the same place. Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, is addressed and it says the king will come out of there. Micah five two, Bethlehem is addressed and the king will come out of there. Tower of the flock, Migdal Eder. So Migdal Eder means tower of the flock. Flock of what? Flock of sheep. So, uh, 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 well, what Edersheim says to us is that in the Mishnah, we are told that Uh, shepherds uh, raised sheep for the following year for the sheep to be uh, sacrificed at Passover. People would come to Jerusalem, and the sheep that were being raised at Bethlehem, Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock, were being raised for future sacrifices. Amazing. Uh, So, why shepherds? Because Those shepherds were raising sheep that were going to be part of a Passover sacrifice. This little baby that they come to worship, we all know, someday was going to be a Passover sacrifice. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The Gospel Passion Week accounts say uh, that just as they set aside the the, uh, uh, sheep Four days earlier, uh, 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 so Jesus was set aside in Jerusalem. And then on uh, Thursday and Friday of that same week, he became the Passover sacrifice. So uh, I think that's why measly, poor, uh, maybe uh, uh, ignorant, uh, according to some shepherds, are uh, have a role there. Because of uh the lambs and the Passover sacrifice that they were actually uh participating in in anticipation of Jesus being the Passover sacrifice.
1: Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's helpful. No, I, I think you know it, it's really kind of neat to see all the little details and how they, you know, work together to form an overall narrative framework, help us appreciate the Advent season of Christ coming. Now you mentioned your book already, and I wanna I wanna ask a, a follow up question. Um, I'm sure people will will love to buy the book and benefit from that. But having written that book and and looking ahead to the Christmas season, and I know people listening to this, you know, getting ready for Christmas, you know, do you have any pastoral or you know just uh, wisdom that, uh, advice that you can give to us? Uh, as we approach the Advent season? What kind of things
0: should we keep in mind? Advent is a time of light, Christmas lights, everything. And yet, um, it was a not-so-silent night. It was dark. Uh, uh, Here's Herod. I'm going to kill that kid. Uh, You know, uh, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of darkness going on. Now, that doesn't mean that we should all be dark. It just means that against the darkness... Of, of Herod and, and, and everything like that, uh, trying to kill this baby, the light even shines brighter hmm. uh, when we see uh, that it's against the darkness of that time, uh, that time when uh, somebody like Herod says, oh, yeah, 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 go find him so I can come and worship him. In other words, so I can come and kill him. And and, and I, amidst the joy and the, the beauty of this little baby, there's going to be some boys under two years old that are slaughtered. So, mm. so uh, what, what I'm saying is not to put a damper on Christmas. I'm just saying that it was a time of darkness, but that makes the light of the Messiah that much brighter. When we see that it was a not so silent night, it was a noisy time of uh, anti-Jewish, an anti-messianic feeling, but I'm going to be happy because my Savior was born in the midst of that, and He is the light of the world.
1: Amen. No, that's that's great. Thank you, Dr. V. Appreciate that. Now, as, as we wrap up here, I, I remembered as we were doing this interview um, that you recently got the good news that your series on teaching the land of the Bible has been made public.
0: Oh my! And I didn't know you were going to mention that.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to. I have so, to. <laughs> and so, you. can you just tell us a little bit about that? I mean, that's that's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah. About ten years ago, uh, about the forty-fifth time I'd been to Israel, we were able to get some money to hire two videographers to go with me on a full three weeks, where I went to every single site that I could go to and they videoed me teaching there uh, at those sites, like in Bethlehem and, and, and those sites, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem. Every site we could squeeze in, uh, we did. And they they videoed it, and they, it's been part of the online course. Now they've made it available to everybody. It's hmm. 34 hours of my teaching at these biblical sites. The site is the Center for Thinking Biblically. And it's free, it's entirely free. You don't pay tuition like you have been before uh, in the course. You can get all these videos and you can watch them at your own pace. You know, each video is somewhere where 10 to 15 minutes. Then there's another video, 10 to 15 minutes. and uh, And it's free. It's on the Center for Thinking Biblically on the Masters University site. Thank you for mentioning that.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, somebody could say, hey, I want to learn about Bethlehem and could look at the video on Bethlehem, see you teach there. That would be great. Thank you for mentioning it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Varner, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast again. I know that you're a joy to all your former and present students. So thanks so much for joining us.
0: Well, it's a joy to see a former student like you serving the Lord in the significant way that you are. Thank you. Praise
1: the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, again, a special thanks to Dr. Varner for joining us on today's episode about Christmas and some of the Christmas issues that we run into reading in the gospel narratives in Matthew and Luke primarily. I hope it's been helpful for you. If you want to examine some of the things that Dr. Varner said in detail you can look at his book anticipating the advent i'll put the link in the description below and i've also linked to his free article it's a little more academic but you can access that from the Tyndale Bulletin. I'll put the link in the description as well, where he does a discourse analysis of Matthew's narrative and talks about his view of the star being an angel. So you can check out those in the description below. And if you want more information about me or the blog, the podcast, you can visit petergaming.com. If you want more information about Shepherds Theological Seminary, where I teach, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.